So I'm going to talk about what I've been reading this week, which is Kierkegaard, the uh, amazing Danish philosopher, Christian man, and pretty much the founder of existentialism as we know it. Uh, and in particular, the book I've been reading, I have never read much Kierkegaard, but the, the book I have been reading is uh, called uh, The Sickness Unto Death. And uh, it's one of his more analytical books. He wrote a few different, he wrote different types of books. He had different periods. Some of his books were more literary. Some of them were more analytical. And he even did, um, he even did some books that were what we would today would call like self-help books. I don't know if you know this, but he wrote uh, these books called The Edifying Discourses. And that's pretty much what they called self-help back then. And it had that purpose of, you know, really trying to uplift people and help people. So uh, I start, I wanted to start with his more analytical books. So I'm reading this book, The Sickness Unto Death, which is essentially about not anxiety, which is something he's known for talking about, but it's about more uh, despair, actually. And despair as, as an analytical concept, he tries to really uh, kind of pin down what that means. And it's very interesting because it's he's essentially doing sophisticated kind of secular philosophy, but he's a Christian dude. So, and he, he's a deeply Christian dude. So it's just kind of suffused with this kind of Christian perspective. And he does at times, you know, frequently explicitly uh, kind of talks about Christianity, but it's not like today's day and age where what sucks today about like Christian stuff is it's its own little genre and no disrespect to people, but like, I'm sorry, if you, if you're in like a Christian band, that just kind of means like, it sucks. <laughs> no offense. Uh, like, I don't mean any disrespect, but it's a critique. Uh, my critique here is of this genrefication. Like, I would love to read or listen to, um, like, Christian stuff. That I'm sure there are lots of Christians out there who are, like, doing cool, interesting, creative stuff. But it gets pigeonholed in this, like, little genre of Christian fiction or Christian music. And, and all that just tends to kind of suck. Uh, so what I'm interested in doing with my own work is... I find a bit of myself, in other words, in in someone like Kierkegaard, because it's just it's just in my view, it's just dope, legit, super interesting, uh, high level, f just existential philosophy, and he happens to be a Christian, so that's that's I think really interesting. Not like this kind of pigeonholed, fragmented, compartmentalized type of genrefication that we have today, where the Christian writers are like this corny little genre. So. Um, yeah, so I've been enjoying The Sickness Unto Death, and uh, I wanted to pretty much, you know, I want to be chill and have fun and not, like, do some heavy lecture. So the format I figured that I would use is just uh, I, I identified some key quotes that I thought are particularly trenchant and stimulating, and I figured I would just give you all some of the interesting quotes and perhaps reflect on them a little bit, perhaps provide some commentary, or perhaps you all have some questions or ideas, uh, which we can discuss about them. And uh, so, for instance, one of the statements that comes out in this book, I think it's a statement he's fairly well known for. I tweeted about it recently. Uh, he says, and I quote, the greatest hazard of all, losing oneself, can occur very quietly in the world, as if it were nothing at all. No other loss can occur so quietly. Any other loss, an arm, a leg, $5, a wife, etc., is sure to be noticed. And I think this is a really amazing point, and it's really worth thinking about. People can seriously fuck up their whole lives, fuck up their whole their whole relationship to themselves, and then pretty much, yeah, th their entire life. It's not an exaggeration to say that in ways that are completely silent and completely invisible to the outside world. 
even sometimes invisible to themselves. In fact, this is a common theme that Kierkegaard writes a lot about in this book, about how people can ruin their lives, essentially. People can go off on a totally wrong path and essentially lose themselves in a way that they don't even fully realize. He talks about despair as being something that people are not necessarily aware of and that there can be people who feel like, like they will say to you that they're completely happy and they look happy and in some ways they are living a kind of semblance of happiness and yet their life is defined by an inner despair. This is something that uh, Kierkegaard says and, and believes. And, you know, I'm kind of torn by this because on the one hand, I do take seriously the the idea out of economics called revealed preferences. For the most part, from a social scientist, from a social scientific perspective, you should generally, you have to kind of take people at their word, but especially rather their behavior. You have to take people at face value. If they look happy and they sound happy and they're acting happy, you kind of have to, uh, from a social scientific perspective, it's all, that's all we got, right? That's, that's the, that's, that's the data. And so um, people do have a way of revealing themselves over time. And so th on the one hand, this kind of existential phenomenological argument that Kierkegaard is making, the social scientist in me kind of says, eh, I don't know if I buy it. But then introspectively and thinking about my own life and, and my own kind of just rhythms o over the course of my life, it does seem that, um, sorry, my volume, I think I was peaking. Uh, one can absolutely, I think, have these weird inner, these weird in inner dynamics where on the outside, everything looks fine, and on the sur on the surface level, one is happy, and yet, and yet, you do just kind of know or feel that you're that you're profoundly lost, or 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 perhaps even worse, you know, tail spinning, uh, sinking in a way that you don't fully understand. And yeah, so I think there is I think there is a a, a potential truth to that. I think it's hard to diagnose uh, as a kind of from a kind of rational, modern, scientific perspective, which is the one that I, uh, you know, generally hold, and, and that I think is the appropriate attitude for diagnosing different claims in in the modern world. You know, I don't think in the public sphere one should take recourse to uh, kind of religious or faith-based positions because it closes off the conversation. Really, it's not uh, it's not able to participate in the kind of open, frank uh, marketplace of ideas that defines. The, the kind of just the contemporary reality of, of, of what ideas are and how ideas function. So I, so I do generally try to, although I am a Christian, I, I never take recourse to Christianity or to faith-based positions or claims in the public sphere. Um, I will talk about my beliefs and ideas and try to uh, explain them or develop them in a way that makes sense on the contemporary, rational, modern plane, if you will. I was going to say sphere, but plane is a better word. I think that's worth doing, but I never appeal to to faith or revelation or anything like that because it's just not fair play with respect to what public discourse is in contemporary life. Um, now, having said that, the fact is, and this is where I think existentialism gets really interesting and valuable. The fact is that in the course of our lives as individuals, we have to make wagers. We have to make decisions. And that's a very different challenge. That's a very different game than having a debate in the public sphere. So when I try to make arguments about things or you know, write interesting blog posts or books or whatever about what is true, let's say, in some sort of empirical or philosophical domain, I never allow myself to make any, any appeals to faith because as I said, it's, it's breaking the rules of the game pretty much. And however, in your own life, 
when you reach a certain juncture, like, you know, should I marry this person or should I not? Should I leave this person or should I not? Should I, you know, go to church or sh should I not? These these questions which don't sit in this kind of standardized database with other other units of analysis, right? It's irreducibly unique, irreducibly original. Your life is an N of one, you know? And uh, you, you, you can't take recourse to scientific inference. Of course, you can take recourse to scientific inference and Bayesian reasoning about all different types of things in your life, for sure, no doubt. Uh, but there are constantly going to be irreducibly unique, singular, N of one junctures where you have to make decisions uh, about how you're going to live. And in those junctures, that is always a leap of faith. It's always essentially a kind of leap into the beyond. And that's where I think that, you know, this is something that the the existentialists in the 20th century, uh, like Camus and Sartre, they, they seized on this, of course, in a kind of secular way. Um, but I think it's very telling that the foundation of modern existentialism as it develops in the 20th century is a Christian and a profound Christian, Kierkegaard. Because in some sense, that leap of faith, that 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 kind of just irreducible will, and that uh, just absolutely unique individual kind of challenge, that Sisyphean individualistic uh, perspective that the the secular existentialists had over the course of the 20th century, you only really get to that, I think, through a kind of background development of a a, a kind of Christian ethos, a, 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 an individualistic kind of Christian attitude in which the individual has to has to kind of pursue their own path um, with with no guardrails with no supports and I think it's kind of interesting how the, the 20th century existentialists try to kind of uh, get rid of the Christian aspect uh, going back to Kierkegaard one of the coolest things about reading Kierkegaard is seeing how and, and, and feeling in, in reading him how you don't really get any of that kind of sexy secular 20th century existentialism without this like deeply Christian faith in precisely that 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 kind of leap of leap of faith that the individual is always understood as as having to 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 pursue so yeah um, Kierkegaard reading Kierkegaard lately has been uh, quite rewarding so that was a, that was a little bit of a a uh, tangent but that's what live streams are all about right so uh, I will uh, keep going with some more nice selections from uh, The Sickness Unto Death. So for those of you who are just joining us, what I'm doing is I've been reading The Sickness Unto Death, a book by Kierkegaard. I'm just giving you some some of the, the interesting tidbits out of that book and doing a little bit of freewheeling commentary here and there. And then uh, I have uh, another segment planned where I would like to talk about a, a particular genre of internet video that I've only recently come across. My wife introduced me to this the other day. Shout out to my wife. Uh, the 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 genre known as um, hang on let me check my notes it's new to me of watch people die inside uh, I think it's mostly known uh, as a subreddit um, subreddit are watch people die inside uh, it's pretty funny it's just videos of people uh, kind of encountering something in the world that is very perplexing in for good or for wor for better or for worse typically for worse typically it's a, it has a negative connotation and then their uh and their face just kind of goes into this particular characteristic state uh which you know as the subreddit states is uh dying inside and i thought it would match well to watch some of those videos and uh i'll do some i'll do some reaction videos as they call them we'll watch some good examples of this uh dying inside 
genre. I thought it would it would match well with the uh, review of Kierkegaard that I'm doing here. And uh, so it's also kind of a test case because if I can make Kierkegaard fun and interesting to listen to and I can uh, pair it with uh, a seemingly dark internet genre, then uh, I think it bodes well for the future of this solo live stream that I am uh, doing here. So, all right. So something else that Kierkegaard says in the uh, the book, The Sickness Unto Death. This one is a little bit of a long one, but sit back, kick back, and I will read it to you. And I quote, whether you are man or woman, rich or poor, dependent or free, happy or unhappy, whether you bore in your elevation the splendor of the crown or in humble obscurity only the toil and heat of the day, whether your name will be remembered for as long as the world lasts and so will have been remembered as long as it lasted, or you are without a name and run namelessly with the numberless multitude, whether the glory that surrounded you surpassed all human description or the severest and most ignominious human judgment was passed on you. Eternity asks you in every one of these millions of millions just one thing, whether you have lived in despair or not, whether so in despair that you did not know that you were in despair or in such a way that you bore this sickness concealed deep inside you as your gnawing seed under your heart like the fruit of a sinful love or in such a way that a terror to others you raged in despair. If then, if you have lived in despair, then whatever else you won or lost, for you, everything is lost. Eternity does not acknowledge you. It never knew you, or still more dreadful, it knows you as you are known. It manacles you to yourself in despair. Man, I love that. This is some deep shit. So listen to what he's saying here. What he's saying is that on some level, it doesn't fucking matter what you accomplish in your life or fail to accomplish in your life. If you have despair inside of you, that you're not confronting and you're not dealing with, if you are allowing yourself to live in despair, you're doomed, essentially. That from 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 the perspective of eternity, or to use a Latin phrase, we might say subspecie eternitatis. From this perspective of eternity, allowing any bit of despair into your life is essentially a kind of betrayal. It's essentially a, a kind of sin. And what's interesting about what he's saying is that it doesn't matter whether you admit it or not. It doesn't matter if it's if you're aware of it even. And that's kind of brutal in some ways because in some sense, again, this is a very existentialist theme. As you all know, I'm sure the 20th century existentialists, all of the stuff that was made popular by them, themes of radical freedom, themes of absurdity, the themes of uh, the kind of extreme individual responsibility that falls on, uh, yeah, individual subjects. All of that stuff uh, has as its source Kierkegaard in one way or another. And here you see this theme, this theme of, of ineluctable responsibility. And what I also think is really interesting about this, this selection, this snippet, is that we, in modern secular culture today, we tend to kind of, in a way, we idealize despair and depression. There's a kind of romance to it, right? If you're suffering, it probably means that you were wronged in some way, and we associate being wronged with some kind of uh, righteousness. And... You know, if you're, let's say, uh, a mad genius or a tortured artist or something like this, you suffer on the inside. And it's uh, we have all of these tropes in contemporary secular Western culture where we tend to see despair as a kind of paradoxically good thing, a romantic thing, a, a, a kind of redeeming indicator of something positive. And what Kierkegaard is actually saying is that that's not true. And that, in fact, if anything, you are ethically obligated to not 
live in despair. That despair is a sin. And yeah, so we tend to think of trying to, you know, the pursuit of happiness, the pursuit of well-being, whatever, these sorts of things. We tend to sometimes see them as selfish. This is huge on the political left, by the way, for those of you who, well, if you're on the political left, you might know this. If you're not, perhaps you don't know this. Um, But left-wing activists in the Western countries have this major opposition to like well-being and wellness. Like people who are interested in physical fitness and yoga and all the different techniques of yeah, feeling good and being healthy. You, there's this like big left-wing critique of of this. They call it like the wellness industry, uh, you know, the wellness military industrial complex or whatever. I've never heard anyone actually say that, but you get the idea. It's essentially villainized, uh, the pursuit of wellness and the pursuit of well-being. There's this big uh, kind of academic and activist critique of this because what they say, and I'll try to be as charitable as possible, uh, the idea is that this is essentially a kind of capitalist way of selling back to the workers, you know, a, a kind of petty, a petty remedy for what is really just their, their utter alienation and exploitation under capitalism. So that people who are interested in well-being and wellness and people who are developing those practices or developing and offering services or products or whatever to this effect are essentially just uh, doing this kind of uh, ideological protection of of capitalism and 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 the basic order of alienation and exploitation and i've always just fucking hated this attitude uh what i really like here about the what i think what we get from kierkegaard is a kind of antidote where the idea is that no in fact if you're allowing yourself to despair you're being self-indulgent you're being selfish you're actually allowing a kind of evil to uh brew inside of you there's nothing romantic about it there's nothing good about it there's nothing ethical about it um, there's nothing redeeming about it. Uh, it's it's you're betraying yourself and you're betraying your your fellow man and the rest of society. And so, in fact, wellness and well-being and these this the the pursuit of of well-being or what I prefer is the Greek term uh, eudaimonia, uh, the the pursuit of a kind of uh, holistic uh, emotional and physical um, uh, adequacy, a kind of a kind of comp- a, a wholeness. A, a, a holistic sense of well-being or a holistic concept of well-being is essentially what eudaimonia means. And I really like that. I think it's not just this kind of selfish personal pleasure or something like you, that you want just because you want a good life for yourself. Um, you actually, you're actually ethically obligated to, to pursue that. And here's the fact, folks, it's not easy. It's actually a challenge. It's a real, it's a real struggle. And you have to cultivate, it's hard work to be, to, it's hard work to uh, pursue let alone possess true well-being or eudaimonia. And yeah, I just uh, really like this Kierkegaardian line that reminds us we are ethically obligated to do it. And what I also really like about the Kierkegaardian perspective, and you get this throughout the book, is just this feeling of like, whatever's going on right now in the short term, in our bullshit everyday lives, like whatever you are thinking about at this moment, whatever your friends are you know, your friends look at you, whatever they think about you, whatever your family thinks about you, it's all just trifles. It's none of it's going to last. Right. And what matters is what are things going to look like when you're on your deathbed and that split second before dying and you, and you're, you're breathing your last breath. How are things going to look then? And that's, that's, that's really what he's trying to remind us. And in fact, I think this is what a lot of the Christian, this is what a lot of the Christian faith is essentially doing, right? We can't really emotionally relate to that because it doesn't, we can't imagine it, right? We've never been on our deathbed, so we don't know. Uh, But a lot of the theological extrapolation of 
the afterlife and um, you know heaven or hell and and these kinds of uh, post life eternal memes, if you will, like heaven and hell. These these memes that essentially depict or illustrate or embody eternity are really just a kind of narrative uh, technique. I'm not reducing it to a tar- narr- to a narrative technique. I'm not saying it's just that. Uh, for you know the uh, you know the the papists in the room uh, you know start uh, calling me a heretic. I'm not saying it's just that, but I'm saying it is in part that. Um, talking about heaven and hell and these these memes of eternity are really ways to narrativize or make a narrative out of this fact that we will we will confront the end of our life from this perspective of eternity um, in one way or another. It will be confronted. There will be a reckoning, whether you like it or not, because it, because eternity is real, right? There is a kind of long term reality to to our lives, like. This is the other thing I've always thought about the afterlife and the concept of afterlife, which to modern secular people, the concept of the afterlife just sounds like one of those like obviously superstitious bullshit things. Um, and in some in some limited sense, if you have an, a stupid idea of the afterlife, I can even agree to that critique. Yes, there is a stupid conception of the afterlife that is a kind of just, I think, stupid, naive and false, uh, unjustifiable notion that makes no sense and is, is not rational. Uh, but in some sense, the consequences that you produce in your life, the way you think and speak and act and, and what you do in your life, it has reverberations into the future well beyond you, well beyond your death, right? Anyone, that's rational. That's a perfectly empirical claim. Anyone can agree to that, right? Um, and in that sense, if you admit that, then there is an afterlife to your life, right? You, you do live on. The consequences of your life carries forward and it's not clear if it ever ends. Um, perhaps, perhaps I did, you know, why, why would it end, right? In some sense, it's very plausible to imagine that everything you do in your life has essentially eternal implications. I think that's actually quite rational. That's not superstitious. And so um, when the, I think when people like Kierkegaard are really highlighting this perspective from eternity to evaluate your own actions and your own life from this kind of eternal perspective, you know, it's not like the, the point of Christianity is not this naive idea because if you don't act well, then you're going to go to this fiery place for millions of years after you die. No, it's not It's not just that. It's, uh, or it's not even uh, primarily that. It's, it's when you look at your life from the perspective of eternity, subspecie eternitatis, you have to confront whether you like it or not that every little thing you do, every little thing you think and say and, and, and believe and act has an essentially... Uh, it, it, it lasts longer than you think it does. Uh, it, the, the stakes are higher than you than you assume that they are. And that you're not you're not just free of this world when you die. Um, and, I mean, in some physical sense, sure, uh, but there will come a moment in your life, perhaps on your deathbed, where you do essentially meet your maker in the sense that when you die, you're essentially, whatever the fuck happens after you die, um, you're essentially going back to the state, which is the state from which you came. And again, that's not superstitious. I'm not. I'm not supposing any kind of mystical uh, or supernatural things here. Just, I mean, technically, you know, before you're born, you're you're not existing, and then when you die, when you die, you're not existing in some sense, in the physical, material sense, anyway. And when your time is up, you are going to you are going to be reflecting on that kind of uh, from that eternal plane. And uh, things look very different. So in the, just to bring this back, this is a, 
you know, quite a quite a long tangent. But to bring this back to the to the Kierkegaard uh, selection that I started with, what he's saying is that you know you might if you're living in despair, uh, you might you might tell yourself, oh, it's no big deal. I can put it off. It's no big deal. Uh, life is short. I'm going to die soon anyway. Who cares? Right. This, these are the types of like secular mundane attitudes that that allow us to basically endure uh, a, a, an, an existence laced with despair. But what he's saying is that actually, no, whether you like it or not, you're going to have to reckon with with your despair. So you better you better shape up and you better you better confront it now is basically, I think, what he's saying. That's how I read it anyway, based Kierkegaard. All right, let's see what else. All right, here's a shorter one. Uh, in the sickness unto death, Kierkegaard says, and I quote, with every increase in the degree of consciousness and in proportion to that increase, the intensity of despair increases. The more consciousness, the more intense the despair. Interesting now. So what he also says, not in this quote, but uh, elsewhere in the book, something he says is that in some sense, being conscious of despair is better than not being conscious of despair because the more conscious you are of your despair, the more likely you are to do something about it. This is reminiscent of what Heidegger says in uh, the question concerning technology. You know, he he famously uh, quotes Holderlin, uh, the poet, who talks about the supreme danger. And uh, I'll give you a kind of butchered English translation of it. You know, what Hol what Holderlin says and what Heidegger quotes Holderlin is saying is that um, in the supreme danger is the saving power also. And uh, Heidegger is talking about technology there. But I think it's the same exact point that Kierkegaard is making. And I, I'm a big fan of this point. I think it's it's really important. We, by the way, we talk about this at length in the um, in the seminars that we did for the Deleuze versus Heidegger course, my course with Johannes Niederhauser. We uh, we did this full proper online lecture series and seminar series. Uh, about 20 people signed up for it and uh, joined us, and we did so. And we did some we did some seminars on Heidegger and Deleuze on technology. And uh, this is something that that we all discussed and and we all were quite interested in because. With tech, what you're seeing today is that in many ways, like people are more alienated than more alienated than ever. Um, technology seems to have more of a grasp on us than ever, and uh, in some ways, especially if you're an accelerationist, if you kind of hang around my circles, you, I know a lot of you are kind of into this accelerationism uh, kind of aesthetic, if you will. And if that is how you see things, then yeah, the singularity that is approaching might be increasingly brutal, but in precisely that kind of accelerating brutality of contemporary global capitalism or technology or whatever you want to call it, there is also possibly the saving grace because people are becoming more aware of it. And perhaps it is necessary to traverse that kind of extreme alienation or extreme uh, kind of hyper-capitalist, uh, hyper-intelligent exploitation that a lot of us are trying to navigate. Perhaps it is necessary to go through that for us to actually cross the threshold at which some sort of escape or exit is possible. It's not clear. That's a little bit um, speculative, obviously, but Kierkegaard seems to think something like this. Heidegger seems to think something like this. Holderlin seemed to suggest something like this. And I'm I'm quite sympathetic to that. Uh, by the way, I also think that's a rather Christian structure, right? Because uh, it's kind of intrinsic to the Christian eschatology that things get worse uh, and worse and worse. And finally, they get really worse. And uh, and you know that's that's the apocalypse that's the that's the second coming of christ that's uh you know when everything when everything turns around and i think you you know as they say you can't immunitize the eschaton so you can never like actually stupidly think that that's like upon us you know if you ever if you ever think uh it's here 
you're probably wrong. Uh, it's not a, you can't immunitize the eschaton. However, you can take that seriously, and you can. I think there's a way of letting that kind of inform your everyday life. And so for me, like for instance, like something I've learned about myself recently over the past few years, my beer's getting warm because I'm talking to. Reminds me of England. Does not give me happy feelings. There are a lot of things I liked about England, uh, but the warm beer is not one of them. One thing I've learned, you know, in the past couple of years is I guess I have been blessed with a fairly high tolerance for uh, like not really caring what people think. Like people, you know, have called me lots of really nasty names. And uh, I think a lot of people have like really wrong ideas about me and often quite hurtful. <laughs> like if, uh, the, the way people see me, I think is often quite mistaken and, and it is often quite hurtful. Uh, but I'm, I'm blessed with, I, it just doesn't, it doesn't register on me emotionally. Uh, and I think that's in part because I was, that is in part because of, of how I was raised as a Catholic and, and in part because I've, I've kind of recultivated a Catholic attitude towards life. Um, and when you, when you do kind of try to see everyday things in, in this perspective of eternity, everything just seems way smaller, right? Everything matters way less. And, uh, yeah. So like if some fucking idiot, like someone out there, I don't know anyone like fucking Brianna Wu or something like that is like utterly convinced that I'm like a racist asshole or something like that. And they say that and they're telling their friends about that. Like, in from the perspective of eternity, who the fuck cares? <laughs> you think that message is going to last very long? It's it's a drop in the bucket. It's pure noise, right? Um, from the perspective of eternity, it just has no staying power. It means nothing. Uh, it won't last because it's it's not real. Um, and so, yeah, I think this this kind of existentialist uh, perspective that we're slowly building through a, a reading of Kierkegaard is really kind of just saying to be to be fucking trite about it. It's ultimately saying, do whatever the fuck you really believe in, uh, because A, it will give you joy, and despair is a sin, so that's good, and B, all the stupid shit that people do to uh, like please others, or be cool, or whatever, it's all noise, and it's not going to last from the perspective of eternity anyway. So if you just simply focus on living a life that refuses despair, and just focuses on a kind of reckless passionate, joyful, honesty and creativity and that's all you do. There's going to be a lot of short-term chaos and people are going to call you crazy shit and people are not going to understand you and people are going to maybe hate you or whatever. Um, but all that's false and it's going to fall away very quickly. And as long as you're like honestly pursuing uh, a truth and this is why Kierkegaard in the Sickness unto Death is he's talking he's always talking about like um, not losing yourself, you know? And the only way to not lose yourself is to be honest to yourself right? Like you are a thread over time, right? And the only way to keep that thread is if you're every day just calibrating yourself to honesty and nothing else. Because if you calibrate yourself to anything other than honesty, what it means is Justin Murphy in April of, you know, 1993 is going to be a totally different person than the Justin Murphy of like 20, you know, April, 2020. Um, like, of course we grow. Of course we're always changing in some way. That's obvious, right? But it's essential. What Kierkegaard is saying is that it's absolutely crucial that that person that grows is at least the same person, that there is a common thread that goes throughout all of that. You need to be able to tell a story that is the true story, connecting the the you of you know April 1993 and the you of May 2020. There needs to be a thread. And the only way that there is a thread, the only way that you can keep that thread going through life is if at all junctures, you're only reporting to reality itself. In other words, that's honesty. Um, 
when you're just honestly accounting for what you're observing, what you're feeling, and you're just going through everything one step at a time as honestly as possible. If you do that, you're going to change. You're going to fluctuate. No doubt. You're going to grow. You will be a different person today than you were like 10 years ago, but you will, there will be a, you will not have lost yourself. You will have the same thread. That's, that's the Christian existentialist ethic that Kierkegaard, I think is pointing us to. Um, and, uh, it's, yeah, I, I mean, it's beyond crucial. It's every, it's essentially everything. Being able to keep that thread is everything. And I think it's just important to see that honesty is really your only mechanism because it's the only thing that can unite you over time. The multiple versions of you over time, the only, the only thing that keeps it all together is, is reality itself. It's a kind of fidelity to reality. Um, uh, cause if you're giving fidelity to anything else, that's going to, that's going to change and you're going to you're going to be unrecognizable to yourself. I mean, think about these people who like wake up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat when they're like 45, they have three kids, they have a wife, uh, and they wake up in the middle of the night with a cold sweat because they don't recognize themselves in anything that they're doing. They don't recognize themselves in their job. They don't recognize, they don't remember why they even married their wife. They don't remember why they have kids. They don't remember why they're supposed to care about their, their kids. And they have these like out of body existential terrors otherwise known, you know, glibly as midlife crises, but this is real. This really does happen. How do you get into that situation? How, what are the conditions for the possibility of that? I would argue the conditions are, and, and this is, I, this is a very Kierkegaardian uh, insight. I, I do, although I don't know Kierkegaard well, and I'm just riffing from the one book of his that I'm reading. Uh, I do see this as consistent with the the message I'm getting from him, which is that you can only find yourself in that sort of terrible situation if Somewhere previously along the line, you lost yourself. In other words, you lied to yourself. You allowed yourself to um, kind of progressively get off the track of what you actually are, of who you actually are. You betrayed, in other words, your most basic inner signals about what is what and what you feel and what you want and what is good. You can only you can only have these kind of catastrophic midlife crises when you have for quite some time. Uh, betrayed yourself to yourself and yeah so that's i think what kierkegaard is getting at so oh shit we're almost at an hour so i think that was a good little sampling of kierkegaard um i don't want to get too heavy on everyone 